Welcome back to She Bangs, She Bangs, Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus, a totally spiritual and equally foul-mouthed podcast about marriage, mistresses, and possibilities. I'm your host, Jennifer Bangs. This podcast is for that special group of people fighting for their marriages alone. And this podcast is also for that wider group of people who don't know if they even want to stay married. And sure... This podcast is also for people who just like a good story. Years ago, my husband had an affair and left me. While we were separated, I started a social club for the brokenhearted called IGTS, or I-G-T-S. I'm going through shit. We aspire to be IBIT someday. I've been through shit. You had to be invited into our club because we didn't want any happy people there talking about their awesome lives. We met every week poured wine, and shared stories. I told myself if my husband ever came back, I'd write about it. And he did. So I did. And then I had an affair with a married man. Grab a glass of wine and welcome to Igitz. Episode 6, To Russia with Love. My story continues after one fantastic year back together with my husband James, We were growing as a couple, and I soon learned we'd also be growing as a family. I was pregnant. I'm having a vision, I suddenly see it. The magnitude of two people in love. How could I have missed it? It had to have been there, but I needed you to show me. We have so much power that's locked inside us. Every time I touch you, it flows. The energy of... Capacity of the infinite sweep of two people, two people in love. In love. I was so excited. I knew things were moving fast. We'd only been back together for a year, but it was a solid year, and James and I felt more like a team than we ever had. I wanted a sibling for our son, a little brother he could wrestle with, or a little sister he could protect. So I got pregnant, and we were both really happy, but also a little nervous. My pregnancy with Andrew had been awful. I was one of those women who had morning sickness, morning, noon, and night. I wasn't easy to live with during my pregnancy. James was not very compassionate. The combination of his selfishness and my moodiness made for a contentious relationship. We made it through, but James had left me only a few months later when Andrew was only eight months old. James and I were a little gun-shy of another difficult pregnancy. But everyone said every pregnancy is different, and James and I were doing so well that I crossed my fingers, uncrossed my legs, and got knocked up. When the fourth week hit, I started getting sick again. Immediately, I started seeing my marriage slip into concern. I even started to see my relationship with my son turn sour. James would come home from work, I'd toss dinner on the table, announce I was going to bed, and I wouldn't interact with either of them until the next morning when James would leave for work. And even during the day at home with Andrew, I'd barely scrape by with much affection or attention for him. I was just so sick. I dreaded the next eight months, but James would encourage the both of us that it was just a season. Just a season, and then we'd have another rug rat. 
I went to my OBGYN for a checkup. I was six to seven weeks along. It was bright and sunny in Santa Monica, and I felt unusually good that day. I remember almost bouncing down the street to the doctor's office, overcome with emotion, thinking about our life and our new expanding family. I was going to the doctor to look at our baby. Our baby. James was home and we were having another baby. I arrived at the doctor's office and was shown into the room. I put on my gown and the nurse asked me how I was feeling. I told her, terrible, but that it was worth it. The doctor soon came in and had me lie down. He rubbed gel on my belly for the sonogram, rolled the mouse around, and then got a concerned look on his face. He leaned forward into the monitor. He did a lot more rolling around, then flipped off the machine, turned to me quickly and said, Sorry, the baby's gone. I'll schedule you for a DNC. What? He couldn't be right, I thought. I called James and drove to his work. He climbed in my car and we just cried. He took off the rest of the day and we went to go see a sci-fi film, District 9, trying to distract ourselves from the horrible news we just received. The movie was about a man and his boy and wanting to get home. I sat there wondering if the little boy or girl inside me would ever get to see their home, too. That night I went to work furiously looking up other pregnancy stories on the internet. I found numerous accounts of women told by their doctors that their baby had died, no heartbeat detected only to go back to their doctors two weeks later and find their baby was alive. I was sure that had to be the case with me. I waited for over a week and went to another obstetrician for a second opinion. He was the best doctor at UCLA at reading sonograms. I was oh so hopeful. He gave me the same news. The baby had died. I asked if there was any way he could be wrong. He said no. He even called in another doctor, and she looked at the sonogram and said the same. There was definitely no heartbeat, and by now, they should be able to detect one. They asked if I wanted a DNC, and I said no, that I wanted to handle it on my own. James and I left that office confused and saddened. I waited for another 10 days, but my body was still holding on. It just wouldn't let it go. Emotionally, I couldn't handle walking around with a dead baby in my belly anymore, so I called and scheduled the DNC. By that time, it had been over three weeks since the awful diagnosis. In those weeks from initial diagnosis to DNC, I got to grieve a little. After surgery, I had time to grieve some more. And then, the decision had been made. We were going to adopt. I had always considered adoption. At a young age, I'd been told it would be hard for me to have kids, so I'd grown up my whole life knowing adoption might have to be an option. I also grew up with a lot of adopted friends. My two best friends, who were both my maid and matron of honor at our wedding, were both internationally adopted. Plus, I didn't really like newborns all that much anyway. As a female, I know that's like blasphemous to say, but if anyone ever came by with one, I was never like, oh, let me hold your baby. I was like, nah, I'm good, keep her. <laughs> Remember, I didn't even have baby dolls growing up. I had stuffed animals and Barbies. And with such a difficult pregnancy with Andrew, later after I miscarried, I was like, yeah, all signs point to this body is closed for business. But I still wanted a sibling for Andrew. We selected our home study and soon enough were on the road to adoption, a process that defined our lives for the next year. Every night it was paperwork. Finding documents, making documents, filling out documents, researching documents. The list went on and on. 
but it felt good knowing we were making a child, even if it was just on paper. A few months passed and I started to feel an ongoing sense of happiness. I had felt happy from time to time since James had come back, but a suspended state of happiness? I hadn't felt that in years. I looked around at my life. We had a beautiful son. Our marriage was stronger than ever. James was doing great financially. We still lived on a wonderful street with wonderful neighbors. And we were adopting a little girl. And it was my birthday. James took me to the symphony, then presented me with a diamond tennis bracelet. The next day, I drove to San Diego to throw one of my best friends a bridal shower. After the shower, I drove back to L.A. the next day, just reveling in how good things were. The next day, my Igget's girlfriend, Lee, took me shopping for my birthday at Nordstrom at the Grove, the place we used to push her babies around. They were now three years old. So much had changed. Lee and her husband were still separated, but little did she know that in only a few months' time, a late-night booty call while his mistress was back in Sweden would lead Lee's husband to getting Lee pregnant again. That was a few months into the future, though. For now, a very unpregnant Lee and I shopped. Lee, with her great eye for fashion, picked out and bought me some fantastic pieces. I also purchased some things with the birthday money family members had sent me. I stuffed the remaining cash in my gorgeous plum designer handbag my husband had bought me for our anniversary just a few months before. I drove home that night, chatting on the phone with my brother, telling him how good life was. I got off the phone, parked my car in front of our house, and got out. I heard footsteps behind me. I turned around and a man was walking towards me up my driveway. He was aiming a shotgun right at me. Oh my God! Oh my God! I shouted as he calmly whispered, It's okay, it's okay, as he tried sliding my purse and Nordstrom bags off my shoulder. The ease by which he did this told me he'd done it before. I didn't think he'd shoot me, but I knew he was going to get my stuff. I clung to my presence for a second. He continued to hush me. It's okay. And then I realized, okay, Jen, this is the part where you get shot in the face. Let it go. So I slumped my shoulders as he dashed away with all my things. Seconds later, my husband, as well as all my neighbors, burst from their front doors. They were too late. All just seconds too late. We called the cops and I felt so embarrassed I didn't have much to report. Nothing stood out about him. He was holding a shotgun. That's all I could remember. Well, that and he looked like Channing Tatum. A hot robber. Great. And I couldn't get a clear view of the getaway car. I was disappointed I had nothing more to offer. And I was shaking from the shock. The next day, I woke up pissed. Pissed that this man, this stranger, stole all my happy birthday gifts and pissed he'd stolen my sense of safety. But mostly, I was pissed at God. I had just gotten to a place where I was starting to feel good again, starting to feel whole, starting to feel all was right in the world. And now this, this, fucking robbed at gunpoint in front of my house. Who gets fucking robbed with a shotgun? I mean, really? I know bad things happen. I never questioned God's love for me. I never questioned his love during the affair or the lawsuits or the cancer scare or the miscarriage. I chucked all that bad stuff up to bad people or just that life sometimes is hard. But this? God could have stepped in and blocked it from happening. It wouldn't have taken much. He could have had James hear my car in the driveway and come out to meet me or had me linger a little longer with Lee and the robber leave before I got home. Anything. I could have been protected, but I wasn't. 
One friend said to me, God did protect you, Jen. The guy didn't hurt you. To which I replied, yeah, well, what if he had? What does that say about God's protection then, huh? That man ran off with so much more than just a nice purse and nice clothes. He ran away with my newly emerging happiness and my belief in God's protection. I stopped praying. I just couldn't hold on to my faith anymore. I was too angry, too disappointed, too confused with God to keep talking to him. I guess you could say we were in a fight. So I folded my arms and stomped away from him. Miffed. Super miffed. Three months later, we moved. We had already been discussing leaving L.A. and were on the fence about it. Once Magic Mike slithered up our driveway, we were like, yeah, we're out. We found renters to our house and packed up the U-Haul. We decided to move to Texas where my family lived. We knew having two small children would be hard, especially with one most likely having special needs being adopted and all. We thought it best to be around family for a couple of years. Since James's parents already had 19 grandkids, we thought we'd take a shot relying on my parents, who only had three. Before we landed in Texas, though, we were going to spend the summer in Iowa. When James and I first got married, his littlest sister, the one who'd barricaded him from her wedding, at the time was living in Iowa on a college campus doing Christian ministry. She'd asked James if he'd help pay her rent. James, ever the entrepreneur, said no, but that he'd buy the house she was staying in. (laughs) It's not for sale, she said. Well, then ask him, James retorted. James and I made our first rental home purchase sight unseen. James started collecting money from his sister's roommates, more than making up for her rent. So he saw the investment opportunity and started buying up dozens of rental properties all over this tiny college town. The houses were cheap and there was never a shortage of students who needed to rent. Years passed and since James had never seen any of the properties we owned, We decided before we made our way to Texas, we'd spend the summer in Iowa, James checking on the properties and me getting to play with Andrew, picking strawberries and meandering through cornfields. We left in May and headed east. Somewhere in the middle of New Mexico, at a Hamilton Inn along I-10, James got angry at me and shoved me against the hotel wall. I was shocked. He'd never done anything like that before. James had a gentle personality. I had never once even heard him raise his voice. Where was this coming from? I closed myself off in the bathroom and waited until he went to sleep. The next morning, I tried to stand up to him, but it was hard with Andrew being right on top of us. Fortunately, we could drive in separate vehicles, and I chalked it up to the stress of moving. The very day we rolled into Iowa, we got a call from the adoption agency. They'd found us a little girl. What we thought would be a long summer in Iowa and then a healthy autumn getting settled into Texas before being matched with a baby proved to be a silly fantasy. There would be no time to set up camp anywhere. We had to fly to Russia that week. We called my parents and they flew up to Iowa to pick up Andrew while James and I flew to Siberia to meet our potential daughter. The second they brought her in the room, we knew she was ours. The first time I held her, I felt like I'd been holding her all her life. She felt so natural, so much a part of me, so ours. You look like her mother, the head doctor commented. I met her. You two are about the same size and the same age. I looked at the paperwork. She wasn't lying. The baby's name was Yulia Dmitrievna Shavalova. We started calling her Bibi for short, and it stuck. 
We stayed in Russia two weeks and then had to fly back to the U.S. sans baby. This was the process. Meet the baby, see if you're a good match, then go back home and await further instruction. The entire summer was a series of flying between Russia, Iowa, and California. We thought we'd be able to change our paperwork to our new address in Texas once we got there. But if you've ever done an international adoption, you know that you cannot be off one jot or tittle in your paperwork. Telling the former Soviets, hey, we know you approved us based on our salary and home address in California, but Jen got robbed at gunpoint in front of that house, and we have property in Iowa, and we'd really rather live by family in Texas, (laughs) would not have gone over well. So we complied and had to keep flying to the Golden State anytime a new document was needed. I got to take Andrew to the strawberry fields once, and we got to see bison one weekend at the state park. Every now and then we'd ride through cornfields with the top down or take a dip into the local ice cream shop. These are the moments I would clutch close to my heart because the majority of the summer was one giant ball of stress. I'd so much wanted to focus on Andrew that summer. When he was eight months old, my attention for him came to a screeching halt. I spent the next year fighting for my marriage and most of my attention went there. Then. When James and I got back together, there was kind of a focus on our family as a whole, but not a lot of attention just on Andrew. Then the last year had been about the adoption. Year after year, my son was shoved aside for more pressing matters. I'd wanted the summer to be about him. It wasn't. I'd put him in the sunroom of our rental home while he played with the few toys we'd brought from California, and I worked on our adoption. I felt enormous amounts of guilt. And even as I'm saying this, my heart is breaking because that guilt has never left. But I reassured myself that everything I'd been fighting for had been about keeping his family together, and now it was about expanding our family so he could have a little sidekick to grow up with. But I was tense, and so was James, because for the second time that summer, he flew into a rage. I have no idea what set him off. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but... Something I said had him suddenly leap up from the couch, screaming and grabbing one of the hard cushion backs and banging me over the head with it. I seized Andrew and ran to a hotel. I would have stayed away, but the next day we were flying to Russia to get our little girl. Literally the next day. What the fuck was I supposed to do? If we didn't go, we'd lose Bibi. I drove to the rental house the next morning, not knowing what James was going to do. He was packed and ready to go. We never spoke of that night again. We flew to Russia, leaving Andrew behind with my parents, who flew up that morning to drive the U-Haul back to Texas with him. It was the end of the summer, and Andrew was going to Texas ahead of us, while we went to Russia to pick up a sister. James and I were in Krasnyarsk for two weeks, and then James flew back to the United States. Someone had to stay in Russia a little longer, and James needed to get back to work, so he flew back to the States while I stayed behind in Russia. I had a month in Siberia by myself in a town that did not speak much English. In fact, there were only two English-speaking channels on TV. One was the same runway show at Paris Fashion Week that year. I got really familiar with Albert Elbaz's L'Anvin collection, and the second channel was various 1980s PGA clips. (laughs) I kid you not. I don't know if the one guy at the local TV station had a hard-on for Jack Nicholas, or that was the only English-speaking video he could get his hands on, but needless to say, I was bored out of my mind. 
There was no internet in the room, just really old and slow computers at the abysmal work center. So I made up my mind this would be the time to finish my memoir. I told myself if my husband ever came back, I'd write about it. And he had. So now was the time. I'd actually been writing a lot over the three years, so this was more about finishing the last couple chapters. And it seemed like a pretty cool place to end our story. In Russia, adopting a baby girl now that we were back together. I knew we weren't in the greatest of places with James's uncanny rage, but being that he had never displayed anything like this before, I hoped it was just the enormous strain of moving, tending to our 60 homes in Iowa, and doing an international adoption all in the same breath. Plus, I had seen the enormous changes in my husband over the last year and a half. He'd become a really fantastic partner. This rage, I figured, was the last workings out he needed to do. And because James was not a violent or angry person by nature, I hoped it was a weird and incredibly short-lived phase. I also couldn't shake this long-held belief that his jet ski accident during our engagement had done some long-term damage. If you remember, one week after James proposed, he'd been out on a lake outside Atlanta. His jet ski malfunctioned, and James slammed into a wave, flipping him over the handlebars, hitting his head on the front of the jet ski, knocking him unconscious. James's father and I immediately flew to Georgia and stayed by his bedside for about a week. During that time, James was acting super funny, and the doctors realized he wasn't breathing right. After several days, he came back to normal, but his dad kept asking me towards the end of the week and subsequent months after the accident if I thought James was okay. I told him he seemed okay to me, but his dad was never sure. Then, when James started cheating on me, his dad really started questioning whether the accident had anything to do with it. Again, I told him I didn't think so. But, but, (laughs) I did remember my initial reaction the second I got the call that James had been in an accident. It was a reaction I never have had before, nor since. I knew in my spirit, my gut, my soul, that this accident wasn't going to be just about broken bones. I didn't know how to articulate these feelings and thoughts at the time. If you've ever spoken to a prophet or psychic, they will tell you that predicting the future isn't something that makes much sense in the moment because it hasn't happened yet. You just have a funny sense about something and it's different. It stands out. That's what I felt that moment on the phone when I got the call James was hurt. But once he recovered in the hospital, he seemed okay, and so I let that unsettling initial thought take residence towards the back of my mind. Then years passed, and James and I were separated. One day on the way to counseling—we're in flashback mode here—when we were initially seeing his dumb therapist, I was driving down the 405, praying about our upcoming session— And a car jetted right in front of me, cutting me off, then veering back into his lane and driving away. Before he whisked away, I caught a glimpse of the license plate. J-E-R-3-3-V-3. I called my littlest brother on speakerphone. Hey, will you look up Jeremiah 33 verse 3? My brother read, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Thanks, bro, I said and hung up. Call to me and I will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. Okay, God, I thought, you know I'm calling to you. Are you going to tell me hidden things I have not known today in counseling? Is that what that car meant? 
Was that a sign? I walked into the counseling session, and without me saying a word, James started talking about his jet ski accident. I have no idea why or how we got on that subject, but it dominated the session. In fact, it was the only thing discussed that day. I tried to get a word in edgewise, but the therapist was fascinated with what James was sharing, so they talked about the accident the whole time. Then, time was up and the session was over. I drove home, deep in thought. I relieved the babysitter and pulled out my old journals from the time of James's accident. My diary said things like, I don't know who my fiancé is anymore. I'm still attracted to him, but it's like I'm attracted to a stranger. <laughs> I didn't remember writing that. I didn't remember thinking that. But entry after entry was that. And that revelation fit with what that prophetic plate told me. That God would show me something I hadn't considered before. Something hidden. James was different. That accident had changed him. A couple months later, we're still in flashback mode here, when James and I were separated, I was at Trader Joe's and I started chatting it up with a lady in the checkout line. She told me she was a psychic. My eyes widened. You don't hear that every day. She asked me what I did. I said, well, if you're a psychic, shouldn't you know that? No, I didn't say that. I told her I was a stay-at-home mom. She asked about my husband and I said we were separated. She then said, is something wrong with his brain? I feel like there's something wrong with his head. She did not mean this in a, hey, sister, he must be crazy for leaving you sort of way. It was a legitimate inquiry into his brain chemistry. I stammered out something about an accident, and she said, yeah, you need to check his brain out. A few more months passed, and while I was working on My Fair Lady in San Diego, I was reading Science Magazine, and there was this teeny tiny article that said researchers at the University of San Diego were looking into the link between brain injury and morality. They left an email address to which I wrote, inquiring if they were looking for subjects, as my husband seemed as good a candidate as they would find. James and I had been growing back together that summer, so James was up for meeting with them. We drove to the university lab and sat at a long conference table, James answering a ton of questions and I just listening. Andrew colored. The scientist asked James about his first negative thought toward me. <laughs> An interesting question. I couldn't tell you my first negative thought toward anyone. How was someone supposed to remember that? James had an answer immediately. He said it was while I was performing out of town during our engagement. He was in L.A. moving my stuff out of my apartment to the apartment he'd found for us to live once the show closed and we got married. He said as he was moving my stuff, he thought to himself, What a bitch! I gotta move her stuff while she's away. I couldn't believe it. He thought that during our engagement? The time when you're most in love? He just asked me to marry him. Now he was thinking to himself what a bitch I was? James remarked he'd never thought anything like that about me before. When was this, the scientist asked. It was right after the accident. I still do not understand how James's accident fits in with the changes in who he was and still is as a person, but I know that they do. Anytime someone hears my story and asks why I stuck around so much for someone who left me and cheated on me, I have to include his accident somewhere in my story. He had a brain injury. He had a brain injury. It has something to do with it. I don't know how, but it does. It helps explain some of his behaviors. Doesn't excuse them, but helps explain them. And it's here in Russia that I found myself wondering if it could also explain this rage James suddenly had. That... And the stress, that, and 
maybe needing to work out the last of his demons. I don't know. In addition to writing every day, I also had a lot of time to think. And it was in Siberia that I had my final wrestlings with God over his protection. I realized this belief that I had, that God would shield me because, I don't know, I was one of his special ones, one of the ones who actually believed in him, that that somehow would get me special treatment, like a pass here or there. I was wrong. God said he would always be there, but nowhere did he ever guarantee an easy life. In fact, Jesus said I'd have trouble in this world. Jesus wasn't lying. So much of my Christian faith, I realized, wasn't very Christian. It was cultural or it was just bad theology I'd picked up somewhere along the way. And I realized my conceit and believing in God so he could help me and get me through stuff. I believed in him for those things, not just because he's God. I started praying again. Not as feverishly as I had when James first left. I've never prayed that hard since. But my faith grew in Russia, a prior communist country, and my Christian faith grew. I finished the memoir. It was done. I'd fought for my marriage alone and won. I felt a huge sense of accomplishment. My life the last three years had been a wild ride, but the payoff was pretty fantastic. I was happy. I was excited for the future. James and my future. Our family's future. I knew there was nothing else for me to write, but I also knew the story wasn't over yet. I knew it wasn't time to publish, but I knew I would publish someday. I had no idea how to reconcile those two thoughts, so I just held space for them and let them rattle around and bump into each other like the electrons of an atom. James and Andrew flew in, and the three of us traveled to the orphanage to pick up Bibi. We got her on her first birthday. the next six months with my parents while James tried to find work and we tried to find a house. Because things had moved so fast, my parents' house was not sufficiently baby-proofed. And because our daughter was adopted, my parents did not understand that Bibi was different. You can't rear an adopted child the same as a biological child. I won't go too much into detail because that would take up an entire episode, but it all comes down to attachment. Biological babies have automatic attachment to their parents, and when that attachment is ruptured, there are serious psychological consequences. When you rear or discipline or even just try to love on a child that's not biologically yours, you have to do things a little differently to counter that attachment disorder. And the standing that this grandchild could not be treated the same as their other grandchildren caused enormous amounts of tension between my parents and me, between James and my parents. And because we were relying on their shelter and they were footing the bill for this newly expanded family while we got our act together, it was just, it was just bad. But the worst part was my husband's complete lack of support during this time. He would bury himself away in my childhood bedroom on the fold-out table we'd stuck in there as his office while I tried to raise two kids, 
one of which could not understand anything I was saying and was understandably freaking out over the aliens that had just kidnapped her. And because the house wasn't fully baby-proofed, I mean, we kept thinking we'd be moving any second, I was a nervous wreck every single minute. But James would not help me. Without our weekly counsel with Dr. Golden, my husband was turning back into a pumpkin. Neither of us understood it at the time, but my husband needed weekly therapy to keep his mind in line. Without anyone to challenge him, he started becoming 100% asshole again. He wasn't cheating on me. I mean, there was no way we were on top of each other. But he wasn't loving or kind or any of the things he had been towards me in the 18 months leading up to our move. Part of the reason we felt confident to adopt and make a move was because we were doing so well. In fact, when we left California, our therapist felt very confident we would fare well, that we would be one of the couples in the many years of his practice that made it, he said. We finally closed on a house after six months. I thought getting out of my parents' hair would ease some of the marital tension. <laughs> oh, no. Being alone again only gave James room to unleash his complete and utter disregard for my heart and release his self-consuming focus on his. And B.B., Oh, Bibi, <laughs> the poor thing was a wreck. I don't blame her, but she was a lot. A lot. She sucked up every single ounce of my attention. I couldn't take my eyes off of her for one second. That's not an exaggeration. A year passed. It was hell. I wanted out. But I was not about to break up our daughter's second family. That would destroy her. So I held on but I was sinking. Part of an international adoption requires you to work with a social worker to help ease you back into life with an adopted child. It was time for another biannual checkup with the social worker. Her name was Beverly. She was from South Africa and just a doll. She drove over to our house and when I opened the door, her face dropped. Oh, Jennifer, you look terrible. We sat on the couch while the kids played in our fenced-in dining room we'd converted to a playroom. I remember telling her I felt like I was pouring myself into two black holes, one for James and one for Bibi. I felt like no matter how much love or attention or care I gave them, it had zero effect on either of them. Zero. Black holes. I don't remember what Beverly said. I was pretty much a zombie at this point, just holding on for something. For something to change. For Bibi to get older. For James to grow up. A month passed, and one night, I went to see my friend star in Hello, Dolly! at a local theater. It was a role I'd done in high school. Yeah, I know, weird for a Texas teen to be playing a New York middle-aged Jewish widow, but hey, that's what high schools do, right? <laughs> I loved seeing the show. It brought back so many memories. I knew it was time to re-emerge into musical theater again. I auditioned the next month for Oliver. I was cast as Nancy, an abused woman who hung out with orphans. Seemed fitting. A spark lit up within me. I felt like I was home. Three months later, that same theater was casting for Rent. I groaned. Rent? Isn't that the one with the lesbians and a lot of belting? Pass. Sunday night, the night of the callbacks, I sat in sweats at home on our couch with the family watching TV. I got a call from the theater's company manager. Hey, they want you here to audition for Rent. Girl, I can't do that show. I can't sing like that. Just come in, she said. They want you here. Maybe you can do ensemble. I threw on the hottest clothes I could find, sprayed my hair, and walked into the callback waiting room. 
They handed me two songs, one for ensemble and one for the character of Maureen. I didn't know either piece. I'm a decent sight reader, but this music was not the kind of music I was used to singing. I was used to the scores of My Fair Lady in Oklahoma. Across the room, I spotted a friend who had been given the music for Maureen, too. She said, you know Maureen has to make out with a woman and flash her ass on stage, don't you? Uh, I am not doing that, I said. She shrugged. Well, that's what Maureen does. Well, I am not doing that, I said. Even if I get the part, I am not flashing my ass on stage. They called my name. I walked in the audition room. A sea of people greeted me. Hi, Jennifer. So good to see you. Let's start with Seasons of Love. The piano began. I started singing. 525,600 minutes. 525,000 moments. So dear. 520. You know what? This is a waste of everyone's time. I'm going to go back outside, get my shit together, and come back in when I'm ready, okay? I walked out of the room, got into my car, and pulled up the cast album, trying to learn the music. After a couple of minutes, realizing the futility of it all, I shouted, fuck this, put the car in reverse, and backed out of the parking lot. Two minutes later, I slammed my foot on the brakes. Wait, Jen, you can do this. You know you're not the greatest singer in there, but you know you can act. Go back in there and act the hell out of this show. I walked back in the room, put the music down, and just made shit up. How'd it go, James asked when I got home. I think I got the part, I said. I did. And that night was the last night things would ever be the same. Tune in next episode, episode 7, From Wife to Mistress. This is She Bangs, She Bangs, Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus. Find me on Twitter at Jennifer Bangs or shebangsshebangs.com. Cheers. Until next time.